Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Talk number something ten on Shanti Deva, and we hit chapter five, and everything slowed down. Um, I realized while we were moving through chapter five that if you take any of the verses and turn them into slogans, uh, they become practices. Um, so I've been trying to figure out how to translate chapter five into practices. And then it just slowed everything down. Um, but first, before we start, um, uh, on Tuesdays I, I uh, teach a mentorship group um, online, um, except for Elaine and Angela. I think everybody's out of town. Um, and there were some really good questions that came up around meditation that I thought we could all just hear about a little bit too. Um, which is, how do you work with your thoughts? Does anybody have these things? (laughs) Um, And so uh, I've been giving a lot of thought lately how to teach meditation. Because I've been finding the more I teach, the more I realize that so many people hear what they want to (laughs) hear, or need different things, or just because it's a, there's a technique or an insight that I have in my practice, it doesn't necessarily always translate into other people's practices the way I think. Um, so I've decided to rethink how some of these practices go. Um, so when you experience sensations when you're sitting, and when you experience images and thoughts and fantasies... Um, It feels like they're happening to you. And of course they do, because all day it feels like your life is happening to you. And that's not just because of you, or just because of your memory. It also happens from outside of you, because everybody relates to you. Everybody outside of you relates to a you, which then helps reinforce the feeling that there's me. So then when you have a certain uh, mind state that arises, like we were talking about embarrassment, um, uh, when embarrassment arises, it feels like it's happening to me, that I'm embarrassed. Um, That's more of a relational example. 
But when you're sitting, maybe there's irritation or um, anxiety or the feeling of... Uh, two, two came up this, this on today. One was being busy and the other was envy. So when you feel uh, envy arise or when you feel busyness arise, something automatically happens where it feels like it's, it's I'm busy or I'm sleepy. Um, or my mind is so busy, or my phone is going off. Um, And uh, sometimes I've noticed sometimes that people, sometimes I've noticed sometimes (laughs) that people who uh, really get into mindfulness practice as kind of pure technique can actually become hyper self-conscious because you're always experiencing things in terms of your own self-consciousness. So then when you start being trying to be mindful all day, you become hyper self-conscious, <coughs> hyper self-conscious of all these feelings you have in you. How do you go get on a streetcar? There are so many sensations, <laughs> you know. Um, so I've been finding lately that it's really important to just remember that there's a distinction between mindfulness and self-consciousness. And self-consciousness is the space where what you're experiencing keeps getting referred back to a sense of self. And I also want to emphasize that that's not just because of you. It's also because of our environment. And mindfulness is the practice where we experience whatever it is we're experiencing, but more in a phenomenal way. So it's just like, it's more phenomenological, right? So you're experiencing what's arising, whether it's an itch in the, I'm pointing to my knee, it's an itch in the knee, um, or um, suffering. Someone was saying in an interview this week that they had this experience of getting on the subway late at night and uh, they were sitting there and then they noticed there was a very young boy on the subway who was carrying a suitcase, a big suitcase, almost as big as the boy. Maybe he was 10 or 11. Does somebody want to shut off the cell phone? I'm so worried that... Oh, it's yours. <laughs> That's okay. It never, it never rings. That's okay. Down, so I'm so sorry. It's okay, actually. It, it, can you just, if you can find it, just turn it. It's in a blue bag. Um, it's, it's appropriate to the topic. Yeah, it happens every Tuesday. Um, so then the kid with the suitcase wheeled his suitcase up to him and said, uh, do you know where the shelter is on Spadina? And he said, oh, I don't know where it is. But he then reached into his pocket and gave the kid $10. And then said, when you get out of the subway station, then just get a cab, and the cab will show you where the shelter is. I don't know where it is. And then he left, and all he thought he all he started doing was berating himself why didn't i just go with the kid i didn't have anything to do 
Why didn't I help him with... His suitcase was so big. He was so small. Why didn't I help... And then he just got into this whole kind of vortex of overthinking and doubting himself. Even though he did what he could in that moment. He gave $10. But this went on for a number of days. And then he had this realization where this kid was suffering. And then he, he touched the experience of just seeing this person's suffering and his own suffering and it just being the suffering. Just suffering. Not his. Not that kid's suffering. Just suffering. All of our suffering. That that kid is suffering all of our suffering. And it wasn't so personal anymore. Um, so I, I was really moved by this story. Um, not that one person doesn't have more suffering than somebody else. But also, all of the chapters of Shanti Deva are leading to the most famous chapter, which is chapter uh, 8, which is the chapter on meditation. And the chapter on meditation is not like how we think about meditation. The chapter on meditation is about how when you meditate, what's really happening is you're exchanging your body for another person's body. Isn't that interesting? That real meditation is the ability to exchange your body for someone else's body. I have neighbors who have just renovated their home and they have a mudroom in the front of their house that's really warm and I know that a f- quite a few of you have been to my house and my porch is really, it's embarrassing it's really falling down and the roof is leaking and I can't stop the leak and I can't get a new, I can't afford a new roof for it so it's just the whole ceiling is like this and it's really cold and it doesn't work and now that we have a baby, whenever he's sleeping I want to put him in a stroller when we come in and just put him in the the porch, but it's going to leak on them. So, um, anyways. If you haven't been to my house, when you get to the porch, you'll see. Um, So, I'm always trying to be really happy for my neighbors when I see them putting on their warm shoes and their warm coats (laughs) and their warm mudroom. And uh, then I was talking to them this week. Uh, I've just met them, they've just moved in. And it turns out the floor of their mudroom is heated. So then when they put on their boots, they're so warm. It's so warm. And uh, so I'm trying to exchange my body with their body. (laughs) That I can experience their warmth as much as possible. But then after reading Shantideva, I realized if I exchange my body with their body, then I'm also going to take on all their suffering. So maybe this is what Shantideva is getting at, talking so much about generosity and so much about working with strong emotions, is working in a way where when we feel strong emotions, that we can feel them in such a generous way that they're in the space of mindfulness and not in the space of self-consciousness. It's not so personal. It doesn't have to always be me. All the thoughts that move through your mind don't always have to be yours. They also can just move through the mind. 
So uh, I didn't know I was going to talk about all this tonight, but this is all really just to say, uh, when you're sitting in your daily practice, try and really make a distinction between the open spaciousness of mindfulness and self-consciousness. We're all so self-conscious. So how can we practice in a way where that's not the, the magnet that everything is gelling to? So I don't know if there's any questions about that. Yeah, Stuart. Um, how, how can you work on not personalizing the emotion, mm. my suffering and, and my anger and my yeah. But which, which obviously I really want. But, but then there's a fine line between that and uh, not cutting yourself off from emotion and just kind of like detaching <coughs> yourself from yeah. these experiences and then possibly coming off as selfish or something. Mm-hmm. So there seems like there's this gray area in the middle. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. For, for me, it, it's always something I'm trying to get insight into, is um, uh, when is it appropriate to have some distance from strong emotions so that we see them, like the watchtower practice that we did a few weeks ago. Were you here for that? Yes. Or uh, when do we become so intimate with emotions that we just uh, let them overtake us until there's nothing left of us. And I think this was Celeste's email, more or less. So can I leave the question up for more exploring? Um, Can I just pick up at Stuart's question? Because I I, I had the same, I kind of went 80% of the way with him and then diverted a little bit. I understand the distinction. I think that makes sense. But if we if we are not self-conscious of the suffering, do we need to use self-consciousness to get to generosity in response to the suffering? No. The generosity is, according to Shantideva, the generosity is just the natural state of things underneath the self-consciousness. Do we need to get to self-consciousness to, to eliminate whatever blocks us from being naturally generous. Say that again? Do we need to use self-consciousness to then get the obstacle that's blocking the natural flow of generosity? Well, I don't know if we get the obstacle, but I think we, we use self-consciousness in order to orient ourselves. Uh, and then, once you've done that, you drop it. In other words, there's nothing wrong with self-consciousness. Um, uh, the problem is when it's just the only mode we have. Yeah. Does that make sense? Um, and then there's more fluidity. More fluid. Self-consciousness is just like a block of ice. Shinra Suzuki has this great line where he says, a big block of ice makes a lot of water. That should just be my answer to every question. <laughs> Someone has a question, I should say. 
big block of ice makes a lot of water. Meditation is like the hair dryer. <laughs> it's the global warming. That should be the new word for mindfulness, is global warming. I think the word mindfulness should actually be replaced with hacking. Because that's really what mindfulness is. It's just it's hacking into self-consciousness. Um, okay. So I gave you some homework. Did anybody do the homework? Uh, so there were, there were three practices we talked about last week. The first practice was uh, all day, uh, imagine that the Buddhas are behind you. So through all your actions, just imagine that the Buddhas are behind you all the time. The second practice was uh, when you're alone, practice like you, or, or be as if you would be when you're in community. And when you're in community, be yourself. So when you're with others, be alone with others. And when you're by yourself, be by yourself with others. And then the third practice that we did, which is from uh, line 80 of chapter 5, is um, when you are in a relationship with somebody... Remember and say to yourself, I'm going to use this time and this space with this person to be awake. So at any time, with any person, it can be anybody, and you say to yourself, I'm going to use this moment with this person to be awake. So, did anybody do the homework? Select. What happened? Um, I feel like um, I use it in an argument with Les. I feel like we're like fighting about something, and I think I said, I'm going to use this moment to be awake. <laughs> I feel like you said it out loud. Yeah. No, it was actually a good cue for both of us that I wasn't being very mindful, and that it was actually, I feel like it did switch something a little bit, and then we right. kind of laughed, and it softened the situation. But yeah. yeah, I feel like saying it out loud to somebody kind of makes it. A little bit more That's interesting. <laughs> Left? Do you want to? I mean, you get a chance to talk also. So. Yeah, no, it, was, it was awesome. <laughs> 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 like, talk about how useful that is that we both knew what we meant mm-hmm. by that, that we both have a common language for what we're trying to do here. So it was like. Exactly, but meaningful. Yeah. did the homework as well, and I had a couple of different things come up. One of my things that I was talking to Julie about uh, last night, I think, is that, well, we were both discussing our Buddhas, and, like, oh, like, so I'm going through my day as though these Buddhas are standing behind me, and I was like, well, what are your Buddhas like? And, like, no, what are your Buddhas like? And one of the things that I noticed that was comforting about these Buddhas is that they're they're just so um, stable and so uh, non-reactive and so like just there and that was really helpful in certain situations in my life to be like oh well, I'm going to be like you guys and just be stable and here and 
Then there were other parts of the practice where I really wanted the Buddhas to be more alive than they were. Like, mm. why don't I have any mental... Give me some advice. Or just like, <laughs> I didn't want them to be stone figures in my mind or, uh-huh. or wood figures in my mind. I wanted them... It seemed unfair. I was like, yeah. well, of course it's easy for you. You're stone. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so I was trying to like embody or like implant um, more like living character into these into these mental mm-hmm. warriors of mine and like make them more living creatures. And um, I was, you know, wanting images of them to reinforce the practice where like the Buddha was rose instead of the Buddha being made of wood. And right. when the when the Buddha is like a living person, it's in certain circumstances that's more helpful for right. me to have someone there who has like fleshy yeah. qualities. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> yeah. I can go on. I did lots of homework. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll give someone else a chance. Yeah. That's interesting. I could get the image of like the raw, raw Buddhas. Like, the cheerleader Buddhas. Be. Oh, I forgot that. I forgot that. That's so my Buddhas were very animated. Because <laughs> they were just like this little group of bald cheerleaders. I, if anybody wasn't here last week, I suggested the Buddhas, you should visualize them as cheerleaders yeah. that were saying, like, give me a B. <laughs> so yeah. whenever I would stop, like, whenever I thought about it, I was just smiling. <laughs> Cheering you on? Yeah. Yeah. Did they have little pleated skirts? Pom poms? I think I had less remarkable experiences than okay. <laughs> No cheerleaders? No, no cheerleaders. Um, I was going for a moment um, with the family, actually. And then, um, and then the funny thing is that I got reactive right away. Like, it was just. I completely forgot about all this kind of noble idea. And um, and then and then my partner went Karamendia's in place. And then suddenly that that was like my ticket and suddenly I was, oh. uh, I was trying to kind of relationally uh, see them as enlightened. And then they said something that was like a hot button issue about my past. And I was like, okay, alright. And I'm kind of just trying to pace myself through it, and she's saying breathe. <laughs> and I couldn't hear, so it was kind of like on a stage, you know, the theatrical yeah. side where uh-huh. the other kind of actors can't hear what's being said. And then I felt like I was kind of at that tipping point. I'm like, okay, I need to go for a walk. So I kind of, I kind of like walked out of the apartment and sat in the hallway, uh, and I was sitting down there. And suddenly I'm visualizing the Buddhas which kind of brought me back down. Yeah. And, and for some reason they're hovering behind me. Mm. And uh, and that, that was that. I could go back in after a few minutes. I did the count kind of waiting for five minutes. Then. Yeah. So. Oh, you put a lot of practices together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, trying to, I was just yeah. kind of throwing everything in <laughs> <laughs> Everything in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> I said everything in your pockets. Um, I don't know if I... I, I'm sure I told this story, but uh, when I was in Thailand, whenever it was, a year and a bit ago, um, uh, part of the trip there was a two-week retreat with uh, Richard Freeman, who I was studying with, who was there. Um, 
And so a lot of times during lunchtime, we would go out and I would, like, we would go find cool things. And um, there was this one really old temple that was nearby that I really wanted to go to. And so I said, oh, Richard and his wife Mary, let's, let's go to this temple. It's really cool. So we went to this temple, and um, there was nobody around. And at the very back of the property, there was this brick building, a white brick building. And if you've been to Thailand, there are no brick buildings. It's kind of rare. And um, so then the monk said, uh, oh, every us old monk said, everything's closed here, but you can go in the building. <laughs> so we walked to the back, um, which is a bit of an adventure because there was hundreds of stray dogs. <laughs> and uh, and so we walked to the back, and the the door was just a little bit cracked, cracked open just a little bit, and it was dark. And then I I peeked inside first, and there was the whole community was in meditation practice, and I thought it was totally silent. I thought that's kind of weird that he would say we could go in. Does it mean we could go in and sit? Or, so I said to Richard, Oh, they're all meditating. <laughs> so he came over to look, and we both looked in. And then we realized the whole room were, was wood and stone Buddhas. Hundreds of them. And they were all different sizes. They were not alike. And at the front of the room, there was a massive Buddha, like maybe you know 30 feet high. And, um, and so we went in the room and we sat with these Buddhas. And you could feel that for hundreds of years, these Buddhas have just been sitting in this building. And the purpose of this building was just to house all this silence. And I I couldn't stop thinking about this building, so I started going back every day. Every day at lunch, I would get on my scooter and I would go over to the... I I called it the Silence Museum. I'm going to the Silence Museum. And I would go sit in there, and it was an incredible feeling um, to have this building that was just for all these Buddhas. So when I got to Shantideva, I thought, oh yeah, that's, that's this building. And we should build one in Toronto, where it has no purpose other than just to have um, silence and sitting. They don't even have to be Buddhas. Maybe it could be just like a whole building of rocks, just silent rocks, for those of us that can't get to the Canadian Shield. Your mudroom renovation. My mudroom. I'm going to start, I'm going to do a... Kickstarter for a, a stone mudroom. Okay. Um, I've been unhappy with the translations, so I've retranslated. This is what you get to do on airplanes. Um, I've retranslated uh, from line 40 to 80, uh, and I'm going to just read out loud parts of it. So you can just close your eyes and listen, um, or you could follow along in your book. So this is Shantideva. Some students have a practice that is geared towards concentration. If your practice is concentration, you should extend it through everything that you do and explore long periods of time where you don't let your mind wander. Sometimes you should reflect and ask yourself, how is the mind behaving? And then you should look more closely at the mind. However, if you're not able to stay concentrated or the focus of your practice is not concentration because of your character, if you find yourself afraid 
Or if you find yourself overexcited at a party, <laughs> you should relax. <laughs> Just relax. It's taught that at certain times, when you give yourself completely, you don't have to worry about following ethical guidelines. Giving yourself totally is the perfection of ethics. When you intend to do something, give yourself totally and follow through with it. And if you apply yourself, that's practice. If there is strong craving or anger in my body and mind, if I'm clinging, at that moment I shouldn't do anything or say anything. I should just be awake and still like a tree. If my thoughts are distracted and I find myself talking too much, if I'm feeling self-important or much too small, if I see only the faults of others or other people's pretensions or my own, or if I have fantasies of deceiving others, or if I'm eager to praise, or if I blame others, again, I should stop and be awake and still like a tree. If I crave material wealth, honor, or fame, or if my craving for friends comes from feelings of inadequacy, I should be still and awake like a tree. My mind can also be a mountain. If I split open my bones and I look right inside the marrow and ask myself, what is the essence of me? Likely I'll stop guarding myself so much. I should think of my body as a boat, a mere support for coming and going and ferrying others. And in thinking of my life as a ferry, I transform it into a wish-fulfilling jewel. I should smile more. I should be a friend and counsel in the world, and I should frown less. I should take delight in moving around chairs and opening doors and putting away tables. <laughs> I should be a student of everybody. I can learn from anybody. If somebody does good or says something new and clear, I should say to them, well said. <laughs> if somebody speaks of my good qualities, I should take this in and be aware that I have good qualities. Then the deeds of others will be obvious. If I care for my own heart, I'll see the good in others. I should speak from my heart and only about what's relevant. When I meet somebody, I will say to myself, I'm going to use this meeting as an opportunity to awaken. So, I think that really captures the spirit of, of Shantideva and what he's, what he's saying. Um, I think... I want to retell the story of Shantideva because I think some people might have forgotten the context. But he's in 8th century India. He's practicing at the largest Buddhist university on earth called Nalanda, which you can still go there and visit the foundations. Um, there were <coughs> thousands and thousands of monks there. 
And it's called a university, but keep in mind that nowadays what we call a university is based on monasteries. That's where we get the pattern for how a university operates, although they mean such different things now. But there were thousands of monks there. And Shantideva was the worst monk. He never went to meditation practice. He didn't chant. He didn't study. And they say he was the practitioner of the three practices, eating, sleeping, and shitting. (laughs) Um, They called him the master of the three practices. (laughs) So... Uh, They tried everything they could to shame him and get him out of the monastery. So one day they said, they they said, Shantideva, we think you should give the Dharma talk. So uh, then they said, you're going to give the Dharma talk and we're going to bring the entire monastery. There's thousands of people. And not only that, they built a massive throne. So the day comes, and he gets up, he climbs up the throne, and he looks around and he says, would you like me to give a commentary on some teachings that you know about already? Or do you want me to say something totally original? So obviously he said, surprise us. (laughs) Um, So he started writing, or he started reciting, uh, the Bodhisattva Charyavatara, this text that we're studying. And then when he gets to chapter 8, the end of the meditation section, as chapter 9 begins, he starts levitating and he disappears. <laughs> and they can't find him for years. Uh, eventually, one day, they find him as a farmer. And they say, well, will you please come back to the monastery? And see, he says, no. Uh, the best way to practice the Dharma is to be anonymous. So he never goes back to the monastery. Um, And in, uh, there's another tradition where, uh, another Asian tradition where he shows up again as a guard of a castle, but they catch him as Shantideva because he only has a wood sword. (laughs) So... Um, anyways, what's really interesting about Shantideva that some of you might feel already is that it's one of the few Mahayana Buddhist texts written in the first person. So usually the author is not around in a text, but here almost the whole text is in the first person, and you really get a sense of somebody not only teaching from their own practice, but also maybe saying to the monastics, don't forget about relationship as the vehicle for awakening. And this uh, is what he calls um, practice. The realization that we're all totally bound up with each other. And also in Shantideva, there's this theme of practice being gradual not sudden moments of enlightenment, but hard work that's messy. Um, Let me read to you uh, the Dalai Lama's commentary on this section. Uh, He says, 
Bringing about transformation in one's outlook and way of thinking is not a simple matter. It requires application of so many different factors from so many different directions. You should not have the notion that there's one secret, and if you get it right, everything will be okay. One should not have that kind of idea. For example, in my own life, if I compare my usual mental attitude today, my mental attitude in this situation right now, to that of 20 or 30 years ago, there is a very big difference. But these differences only came about step by step. I started learning Buddhism at age five or six. At that time, I had no interest in it, although I was seen as the highest incarnation, reincarnation. Then, I think around 16 years old, I really began to feel serious and really tried to start serious practice. Then in my 20s, even when I was in China, there were a lot of difficulties. Still, whenever I had the occasion, I received teachings from my tutor. Then, unlike the previous time, I really made an effort from within. Then around the age of 34 or 35, I really started to think about emptiness. And as a result of intensive meditation based on serious effort, my understanding of the nature of cessation became real. Then I could feel this sense. There is something. There is a possibility. And that gave me inspiration. Still, at that time, bodhicitta was very difficult. I admire bodhicitta. That kind of mind seems marvelous. (laughs) But I was in my 30s, and the practice was very far away in my 30s. Then, somehow in my 40s, mainly as a result of practicing Shantideva's text and some other books, eventually I came to have an experience of bodhicitta. But still, my mind is in bad shape. But somehow, I have a conviction that if I have enough time, appropriate time, and an appropriate area, I will develop bodhicitta. So far, it's been 40 years. So when I meet someone who claims to have attained high realization, it makes me laugh. (laughs) But I try to hide that feeling. (laughs) If someone says, oh, through hardship and many, many years something might change, then I see something is working. If someone says, oh, within a short period like two years, something really big changed, I think to myself, this is unrealistic. Isn't that lovely? (laughs) He goes from five years old to 40 years old. So... Shantideva is saying here that being in your narrow sense of self is a real disadvantage because you can't have bodhicitta. You can't have a passion to be awake. And you can't have this passion to live in a way that awakens other people. The way we said it last week was the passion to be somebody who gets into conflict and your presence de-escalates the conflict. Uh, I spent yesterday walk, uh, on a long walk in Vancouver with uh, Aaron Robinson, and, uh, who many of you know. 
you also might know that she has this love-hate relationship with Vancouver. Uh, she loves Vancouver, and she hates Vancouver. So I said, what are you going to do? Because you love Vancouver, and you hate Vancouver. And um, she said, oh, well, I've had this idea. I know the things that I don't like about Vancouver. And she listed them, like certain streets, certain kind of architecture, all kinds of things. She has the whole list. So she said, so what I plan to do, if I could do this, is I'll just go around and take a sample of each of those things and then put them in some alcohol and make tinctures, Vancouver tinctures. So then whenever I get down about Vancouver, I'll just take some of the tincture and then it will be homeopathy. (laughs) So then I talked to her. um, We've been emailing and she's actually going to do this now. So she's going around Vancouver and she's going to take tinctures of all the things she doesn't like. And that way, whenever uh, she starts getting all down on Vancouver, she'll reach into her purse, like rescue remedy, (laughs) Vancouver remedy, and then she'll just take uh, the tincture. Um, And so this, to me, really is love. Love tincture. Um, We can also do this with people we don't like. We, we can get really close to them and maybe get like a swab <laughs> and then make a tincture of that person. It's very easy to find people who are good people, but it's very rare to find someone who's really awful. And so you're really lucky if you have a really awful person in your life because uh, they really can help you practice. If you just get a good swab. <laughs> And if they're really awful, it's easy to get a good swap because they're around all the time, sticking to you, you know. Okay, I want to just say one more thing about love, and then we'll finish. Uh, There is a wonderful magazine called Yes Magazine, uh, and this issue that's out right now, there's published a really great and very long conversation between a woman named Leanne Simpson and, and Naomi Klein. Leanne Simpson is uh, a very young woman who's an academic um, and also, I forgot the name of her book, she wrote a really great book, Turtle Something, uh, a book about, I've only read parts of it, but it's all about reimagining Ontario several hundred years ago, because um, I think we have very short memories, and a lot of us, we can't remember Uh, what it was like here several hundred years ago. Um, So anyways, uh, her and Naomi have this really beautiful conversation that's transcribed here. And I just wanted to to read some of it. I know I'm reading a lot tonight, but um, pay pay attention. Uh, Naomi says, "Uh, I think a lot of trouble has to do with the state the land is in. Because in British Columbia... That was the outrage over the Northern Gateway routing. You want to build a pipeline through that part of BC? Are you nuts? It was almost a gift to movement building because they weren't talking about building it through an urban area. They were talking about building a pipeline through the most pristine wilderness in the province. But we have a harder job here in Ontario because there needs to be a process not just of protecting land, but of finding the land in order to protect it. Whereas in BC, it's just so damn pretty. 
Then Leanne responds. I think for me it's always been a struggle because I've always wanted to live in BC or the north because the land is so pristine. It's easier emotionally for me. But I've chosen to live in my territory of southern Ontario. I've chosen to be a witness to this. And I think that's where in the politics of indigenous women and traditional indigenous politics, it's a politics based on love. That was the difference with Idle No More. There were so many women standing up. In some ways, it's a gift for all our organizing around governments and politics. And this continuous rebirth has been outside of a system and it's been based on a politics of love. So when I think of the land as my mother, or if I think of it as a familial relationship, I don't hate my mother because she's sick or because she's been abused. I don't stop visiting my mother because she's been in an abusive relationship and she has scars and bruises. If anything, you need to intensify the relationship because it's a relationship of nurturing and caring. So I think of Ontario. I try to have an intimate relationship, a relationship of love, even though I can see the damage, but I try to see the beauty that's still there. There's a lot of beauty in Lake Ontario. It's one of those threatened lakes, and it's dying, and no one wants to eat the fish. But there is a lot of beauty in that lake. There's a lot of love in that lake. And I think Mother Earth is my first mother. Mothers have a tremendous amount of resilience. They have a tremendous amount of healing power. I think the idea that you abandon it when something has been damaged is something we cannot afford to do in southern Ontario. A little bit. Naomi says, exactly. But it's such a different political project, right? Because the first stage is establishing that there's something left to love. My husband talks about growing up beside a lake that you can't swim in and how it shapes your relationship with nature. You think nature is somewhere else. I think a lot of people don't believe this part of Ontario is worth saving because they think it's already destroyed. So you may as well abuse it some more. There aren't enough people who are articulating what it means to build an authentic relationship with non-pristine nature. And it's a different kind of environmental voice that can speak to the wounded as opposed to speaking to just the perfect and the pretty. Then Leanne says, if you can't swim in it, canoe across it. (laughs) Find a way to connect to it. When the lake is so ruined you can't swim in it or eat from it, that's where healing ceremonies come in. I was really moved by I've read this so many times over and over. I think what she's really saying here, politically, is that capitalism doesn't really believe in its own future. So it just says, fuck it. Let's take what we can right now. And this is the uh, mind state of extractivism, 
which is I'm just going to extract whatever I can right now, which from a Buddhist perspective is stealing. It's stealing from the future right now and calling it growth. And all of us have this in our own mind. And the opposite of extractivism is a politics of love, of caring. And what we have to love is all the places in Vancouver we don't like. And we have to fall in love with, I love this term, non-pristine nature. Which includes you. You're not pristine anymore. You have this thing called baggage. Has anybody heard of this? So I think that what Leanne Simpson is saying here is exactly the same as what Shanti Deva said while he was floating away. Is we have to intensify our relationships. Intensify relationships. So that's all I'll say. Does anybody have anything that they would like to add or comment on for a couple minutes? Yes. Um, it's, uh, the story that you, you shared about uh, the man who helped the camp boy, that it really resonated with me because I move into judgment very quickly. So fast, yeah. And um, I did, the, I, did um, I didn't work with the Buddhas, but I worked very deliberately with the, the last practice mm-hmm. around being awake and, and reminding myself of that when, when in relationship and, and also, also outside of that. And I felt that um, there was a, re- it was really, I've taken on too much right now and it's been really hard for me to, to hold it all. So I've been very reactive lately. So it's just I was very conscious of like not being able to catch it quickly, and getting swept up into it, and then but and then and then acknowledging it and seeing it, stepping back and kind of from the observing perspective, being able to uh, create some spaciousness within that. And then what would happen is I would see it, and then I would move into judgment, and then I would try and move into generosity. And I just felt like there was so much work. Yeah, you know it's, yeah. Like, the the eye can't move into right. all these things. Right. The eye is the extractivist. Right. It just takes whatever it can get yeah. and pulls it to itself. Yeah. So that's not what's being talked about here is generosity. Right. Generosity is the displacement of that that me. Were you here last week? I was, yeah. Yeah, last week I was talking a little bit about how one of the things I've been seeing in my meditation practice is that I find it really difficult to meditate when I feel like I'm meditating to do the meditation practice. Like if I go sit down and say, I'm going to do meditation now, I'm still in this doing mind. And then there's no unwinding. So I sit... But at the end of the sitting, I don't feel like I've really like unwound. Because really, I wasn't meditating. I was doing meditation practice. Right. So well, When you were talking about you know, the difference between the self-consciousness and, and mindfulness, I'm yeah. 
it's very clear to me that, that my self-consciousness is very strong right now. And yeah. so I'm just wondering if there's any, if, there, if, there's, a, if there's anything that I can bring to Oh, me yeah, uh-huh, say, there is, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Listen to this. If concentration is not the focus of your practice due to your character, if you find yourself afraid or if you find yourself overexcited at a party, you should relax. <laughs> uh, I'm not done. <laughs> Let me just check here. Just relax. <laughs> It actually says something afterwards that I actually think is keeps going, which is that, and then if you can relax, you can give yourself completely, and if you can give yourself completely, that's the perfection of ethics. So relax. We all need this. I'm so stressed out. Ruth. Well, I was, when you were talking, uh, reading from the article about um, loving being destroyed nature, yeah. I started thinking about um, the current struggle that's happening around Kensington Market and yeah. the gentrification and mm-hmm. how we also need to love uh, not beautiful parts of the city yeah. that aren't functional, that aren't pretty, that are yeah. gentrified, that don't really make sense in the bigger, broader picture. Yeah. But those areas are also really important. Yeah. And to figure out how to, you know, accept that yeah. certain areas of the city are going to should and yeah. and need to remain, not you know these beautiful for sure places. Yeah, something aches in my heart when I'm on Spadina, yeah. because I grew up here and I spent my childhood on Spadina, and the east side of Spadina was all Jewish, and the west side of Spadina was all Chinese, and then there were no streetcars. And the road, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but you park on an angle. Mm-hmm. You didn't park like how we park now all over the city. And there were no lines on the road. So not only did you park on an angle, but there was no like line to know where exactly to park your car. It was so disorganized. And all the, the butchers had, had uh, birds. <laughs> so you go down, there's birds, the cars are everywhere. It's like, it was amazing. It was so amazing. And now it's, I don't know what's happened to Spadina. And so my heart aches a little bit because someone tried to make it beautiful. Last, it's not even that untidy. <laughs> it's the last untidy. Yeah. The last vestiges of that. Yeah. What are we going to do? <laughs> yeah. Intensify our relationships. Yes. Well, one more comment or question. And in Carmen. the same way, the parks that we walk in yeah. are now, um, you know, sort of really bugging me because there are these bombs of blue and black, enormous garbage bins oh, yeah. that are also a work of, you know, great Toronto politicians yeah. that aren't engaged with that caring of beauty. Uh-huh. This politics doesn't deal in beauty. Yeah. And beauty is important. Mm-hmm. Whether it's small or different mm-hmm. or the 
interface between that beautiful green yeah. um, body that is our rest place, mm -hmm. and then these bins that are completely not considered. Mm -hmm. There's no relationship yeah. between pictures. Yeah. <laughs> make bin pictures? How do you make pictures there? we got to get you on the design project. Yeah, right? really. <laughs> you know? Don't you think Carmen should design some there, new bins? Carmen, why don't you design some bins and then you can pre already, present them I'm one night? I already want to drop being a designer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware of the time, and yeah. Julie is going to talk for a few minutes, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to stop. How about I stop, then Julie talks, then we'll chant. Oh, that's nice. So, yeah? Yeah. Okay. That's great. So Thank I'll you. pass it over to you.